0: Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome to the Mansion on the Hill. This is the home of Terry's mysterious moments. Stories of oddness, of weirdness. Of nature gone strange, this is season four. We thank you for coming along for the ride. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, friends. This is Terry from Texas. In season one of Terry's Mysterious Moments, episode eight, I believe it was, I spoke about angels, and I gave some of my viewpoint on what angels are and are not. This episode that I'm about to do deals with angels again, but I will not add any personal beliefs into it. I'm just going to give you the story and let you make up your own mind. This, uh, this story was suggested by my very own producer, Aaron Hunter. It was a story I think he said his father pointed out to him and I looked at it and I said well this being Easter weekend tonight is Easter Sunday night uh, as I record this I figure a story on miracles would be a great story for for this week considering the fact that we're in the weirdest time in human history I believe it may help some people so let's get on with the story okay. We're going to be talking about the Cokeville Miracle. Uh, if you don't know it, it happened back in 1986 in Cokeville, Wyoming. And what happened was this man decided that he was going to take a school full of children hostage in order to get his manifest read and put across to President Reagan. Cokeville, Wyoming, May 16th of 1986. Here are the facts of the case. David Young was the only police officer in Cokeville for six months in 1979. He was fired for misconduct and afterwards he moved to Tucson, Arizona. He married a woman named Doris Young there and both David and Doris Young had ties to white supremacist groups, including the Posse Comitatus, and the Aryan Nations. David and Doris Young both returned to Cokeville on May 16th of 1986. At 1 p.m., they pulled up to the Cokeville Elementary School and unloaded a gasoline bomb, along with four rifles and nine handguns. Vengeance for having been fired did not seem to have been the motive for this act, but rather a philosophy recorded in journal entries referring to a brave new world where he wanted to reign over intelligent children. He had been aware of above-average achievement scores from Cokeville's education system. Journal entries also indicate that he saw opportunity in the close-knit community. He wrote, Threaten one, and all are at your mercy. David Young went to the school office handing out a manifesto entitled, Zero Equals Infinity, and announcing, This is a revolution. Teachers were confused and baffled by Young's nonsensical strange writing and deduced that Young and his wife were possibly mentally ill and definitely delusional. Meanwhile, Doris Young went from classroom to classroom and lured 136 children, six faculty, nine teachers, and three other adults, including a job applicant and a UPS driver, into a first-grade classroom for a total of 154 hostages. She lured them by telling them there was either an emergency, a surprise, or an assembly there. Young had initially planned to involve longtime friends Gerald Depp and Doyle Mendenhall, who had invested money with him in a get-rich scheme that Young had called the biggie. The two men eventually refused to participate in the event. Both were left handcuffed in a van outside the school. David's youngest daughter from his first marriage, Penny, entered the elementary school with David and Doris, but refused to carry out the plan, leaving to report the incident at the town hall. Penny, Depp, and Mendenhall were never charged in relation to this crime because of their refusal to participate. In the classroom, Young held the gasoline bomb, triggering mechanism attached to a shoelace tied around his wrist. He demanded a ransom of $2 million per hostage and an audience with President Reagan. Young had also sent a copy of his manifesto to President Reagan. With permission, teachers brought in books, art supplies, and a television to help keep the children occupied. Meanwhile, police and parents gathered out of sight of the schoolroom where the hostages were held, and Doris Young tried numerous times to calm the children by telling them to, quote, think of it as an adventure movie or that they would have a great story to tell their grandchildren. Many children showed signs of distress with sobs, complaining of headaches from the smell of gasoline from the bomb, or simply wanting to go home. One hostage observed a birthday on that day and songs were sung in his honor. The hostage takers took part in the singing. The mood did not lift with the singing and teachers quickly negotiated with the hostage takers to get items from the library to help the kids get their minds off the siege and help to pass the time. Prayers were offered in small groups among the children. About two and a half hours into the standoff, David Young transferred the triggering mechanism of the bomb to Doris's wrist and went to a small bathroom that connected to the first and second grade rooms. While he was gone, Doris jerked her hand on the triggering mechanism and the bomb exploded, filling the room with black smoke and severely injuring Doris. Immediately following the detonation, the teacher started to shove children through two open windows onto the grass outside the school, causing chaos as panicked parents tried to break through police lines. Following the explosion, the police report states that David Young opened the door from the bathroom, shot and killed his wife, shot and wounded John Miller, a music teacher, who was trying to flee, and then closed the door to the small bathroom and killed himself. 76 of the hostages suffered injuries, mostly flash burns and other injuries from the exploding bomb. Several children reported seeing angels in the classroom that day, including many children who claimed to have seen a beautiful lady or a person in all white who told him to go near the window. Other children reported seeing an angel over each child's head. Amy Bagasso Williams related the following. I began to wonder, what happens if I die today? I don't know where to go. Will I see my family again? I was really scared for the unknown. Most of the kids in my class were LDS, but I wasn't. I was a boat on an ocean without a sail. There wasn't any anchor to tell me what life was all about. Before the blast, the gasoline fumes from the bomb were making the children and the teachers sick and Young allowed them to open some windows. He also allowed teachers to keep their classes together to help them stay calm. The time ticked by as teachers read stories and students colored pictures and played with Legos. Some also gathered in groups to pray. Cameron Wixom, a sixth grader, prayed with about a dozen of his fellow students. Kneeling, we bowed our heads and folded our arms. The feeling, after the prayer, was one of total confidence that we had just placed our lives In the hands of our loving Heavenly Father, he recalls. It was like our part was completely done, and it was just a matter of time. Williams recalls a kindergarten teacher inviting her to join the teacher and some students in prayer, an unfamiliar concept for the fifth grader. I told her I didn't know how to pray, she shares. The teacher said you don't have to know how, so I crawled over, folded my arms, and bowed my head. I don't remember much of what she said, but I remember suddenly feeling like I had a warm blanket around my shoulders. This incredible amount of comfort and joy that I can't explain, I knew in my heart that I would be okay no matter what happened. Another fifth grader, Lori Nate Conger, also prayed with some of her classmates. I remember thinking, David Young can control a lot of things, but he can't keep us from praying. That's one thing he cannot do," she says. Young grew increasingly agitated as the afternoon wore on. In an effort to keep the children away from him, teachers used masking tape to create a magic square around the bomb and then instructed the children to stay outside of it. Eventually, getting more and more irritated at the children, Young stepped away to the restroom and he gave the bomb detonator to Doris while he was gone. yep. She was responding to something and she raised her hand too quickly and it set the detonator off. The bomb exploded. It was an explosion that I can't explain. A total instant black, the kind of black that you can't see anything, remembers Katie Walker Payne, who was a first grade student at the time. I felt compression and heat like nothing I had ever experienced. I heard teachers screaming for everyone to get down. I looked in the center of the room and all I could see was fire. There were flames all over the room and children screaming, just pandemonium, recalls Carol Peterson, a second grade teacher at the time. Another teacher was trying to help me escape. I said, I don't know where my children are. I can't leave, but he yelled, get out, get out. Children and teachers escaped through windows and the classroom door. Williams recalls, when I got to the hallway, I felt a tickling sensation on my shoulder and ear. I took a few steps and started feeling heat on my skin. I realized I was on fire. She dropped to the floor and started rolling to put out the flames. Two teachers ran to her aid and slapped the flames out with their bare hands. Then they picked me up and told me to run. As the children escaped, David Young began firing a gun inside the smoke-filled classroom. Outside. The music teacher, John Miller, lay on the ground, his white shirt soaked in dark red blood. None of the children were hit, but Miller was shot in the back as he helped others out of the burning school. He would later recover. Frantic parents gathered behind police barricades cried out for their children as police officers ran toward the school. Ambulances, fire trucks, and news cameras lined the streets. I saw bodies all over the lawn, and I didn't know if they were dead or alive, recalls Conger. Everyone was just so black that you couldn't recognize anyone. Some kids were badly burned with skin hanging off their arms and necks. I didn't even know where to go or what to do, Conger continues. I found my older brother pretty quickly and we just started walking toward our home. Then I saw my mom running down the street. I'll never forget that reunion when she ran toward us and wrapped us in her arms. For the first time, I remember thinking, I'm safe. It's something I will never forget. Despite the explosion, all students and staff made it out alive. Only David Young and his wife perished. Ron Hartley, lead investigator for the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office, had four children who survived the bombing. When he arrived at the scene, he was immediately told that the physical evidence didn't add up. He said, I met the bomb tech right there at the door, and he said, Hartley, what you have here is a miracle. That bomb should have leveled the wing of this school, but it looks like the bomb blast went straight up. I don't know why. I can't explain it. In the days after the bombing, more astonishing evidence came to light. Investigators discovered that wires to three of the bomb's five blasting caps had been mysteriously cut, preventing detonation. Furthermore, the explosive powder that should have lit the air on fire had been miraculously hindered from its deadly purpose, thanks to the leaking gasoline. And though the walls were pocked from shrapnel, no one was hit by any of it. Everybody kept saying, "'Isn't this a miracle?' But I took it as luck,' Hartley said. His perspective changed dramatically a couple of weeks later, when his six-year-old son confided in a psychologist that he had seen angels on the day of the bombing. I came home with the intent of factually proving to him that he couldn't have seen angels, Hartley recalls. I asked him who he saw, and he said, I don't know. She didn't tell me her name, but I think it was Grandma Meister. This was exactly what I was looking for. I told him it wasn't Grandma Meister because she's alive and living in Pinedale. But the young boy insisted that his story was true. That's when Hartley, ask his wife to get out the family photo album. We put it on the table right in front of him and I started flipping through the pages. I flipped to one page when suddenly he put his little hand on a photo and just beamed. When you do interrogations in law enforcement, you watch for body language. You can tell through physical reactions when someone is lying and when they are not. When my son saw that picture, he just brightened up and said, that's her, that's my angel. And it wasn't Grandma Meister, it was my grandma, Elliot. How do you argue that? She's been dead for three or four years. Hartley's son told him there were angels for everyone in the room that day, and just prior to detonation. The angels joined hands around the bomb and went up through the ceiling with the explosion. When he said that, it lined up with the physical evidence that in addition to the fact that he picked out Grandma Elliot, that's evidence I can't deny. Other children also gave accounts of heavenly intervention, and in the months after the bombing, more of them were able to identify ancestors who kept them safe on the day of the crisis. As I sat coloring, I looked up and saw a woman dressed in a long white dress. She had short, dark brown hair, Payne recalls. She said to me, Katie, I love you very much. You need to listen to your brother and remember that I will always love you. I remember just nodding my head. I looked down for a second. When I looked back up, she was gone. Soon after that, my brother came over and told me we were going to sit by the window. I followed him and sat down, and he went and got my sister Rachel. He told us he had to tell his friends he was going to sit with us, and he would be right back. He walked across the room, and the bomb detonated. Eight months later, Pain learned who the woman in white was when her mother pulled out an old locket. I kept telling my parents about the lady who had talked to me and that I didn't know who she was, but I knew the instant my mom opened the locket that it was her. My mom then told me that she was her mom, our grandma who had died when my mom was only 15. Jenny Sorensen Johnson, a first-grade survivor, had a similar experience. I had a teacher helped me out of that burning classroom that I did not know," she says. I don't remember her saying anything to me, but I trusted and followed her out of the burning room. I turned around once to go back for a shoe that had come off when I was trying to escape, but she motioned for me to keep coming through the bathroom entryway, and I followed. As Johnson continued to attend Cokeville Elementary after the Cokeville Miracle, she searched for the teacher who had helped her that day. Years later, when Johnson was about 12 years old, she finally learned the identity of the mysterious woman. While looking through a family album with her grandmother, Johnson stopped at a familiar face. I asked what grade this particular woman had taught and why she quit teaching after the bombing. My grandma Toomer looked at the picture of her Aunt Ruth, whom I was referring to, and she said she had never been a teacher that she knew of and she was not from Cokeville anyway. I explained that she was the teacher who led me out when the bomb went off. With tears in her eyes, Grandma explained to me that there is no way she could have been there because she had died earlier in the 80s. I continued to tearfully testify that she was there and she saved me. Not everyone who was in the school that day saw angels or ancestors, but even they have no doubt that miracles occurred. I've never doubted for a second that they saw exactly what they claimed to have seen or heard. Wixom says. The way those witnesses all came out, each very independent of each other, is proof enough. Conger agrees. I don't remember seeing any angels, but I definitely felt guided, she says. I knew exactly what to do and where to go. I couldn't have done that on my own. I believe what everybody else says and have faith that they saw what they saw. It's not that we are better or more special than someone else. It's not that God loved us more. For some reason, we were all supposed to make it out of that classroom alive. I don't know why, but I am grateful. Williams, who was severely burned in the explosion, did not see angels that day either, but she experienced a different kind of miracle after being rushed to the hospital. My hair and eyelashes were gone. My face was completely unrecognizable, she recalls. All the nurses cried as they cleaned my wounds, she says and the doctor was talking to my parents about skin grafts and plastic surgery. I remember that same feeling I felt in the classroom when I prayed," she recalls. I felt deep peace. I experienced an incredible feeling of being known and loved. I was told my scars would completely heal and no one would look upon my face and know what happened. Instead, the scars I would have to heal from would be those of forgiveness and trust. Williams' skin began to heal at a rapid rate, and despite the severe burns, no scar tissue formed. Over time, her skin healed completely, and today she carries no scars from the events of that day. But for Williams, her healing was not the greatest miracle she experienced. The true miracle was not that I survived or that the third-degree burns I suffered healed without a trace. It was that I learned that I was not alone in the world. The events of May 16, 1986 left an indelible mark on the hearts of those who survived, helping them live their lives with a new perspective and deeper gratitude because of the Cokeville Miracle. Have you ever seen your angel? Or have you seen your guardian spirit? I have never seen my guardian spirit but according to a story I was told I had one and in fact I probably had more than one over my life but my older cousin by about 15 or 20 years I'm not sure how old tells me a story of when I was an infant after my mother had passed away my grandmother and she were babysitting me and I was running a fever and they were sitting by my bed and I'm sure some prayer was involved, but suddenly my cousin said there was a light that just appeared and came down and covered me. And she said that my grandmother told her that it was my mother looking out for me. And after a little bit, the light went up, disappeared, and they checked me and I was free of fever maybe i do have a guardian angel i mean i know i have a guardian angel because i'm assured that but maybe i do have a guardian spirit that checks on me every now and then protects me i mean because i've been snake bit suffered no ill effects i've been gunshot suffered no ill effects and i've been in car accidents that weren't bad so i would say there was some safety issues there but do you believe in angels Do you believe that in the Bible, when it talks about angels, it talks about that one third of angels went with Satan when he fell from heaven? So we have two good angels, one bad angel. Could this have been angels? Could this just have been the projections of the minds of these children who had been raised in a religious atmosphere? The evidence points to angels. With the shrapnel that was in the bomb, nobody got hurt. The only two people that died were the ones that instigated this incident. The children were burned and injured in that way, but they all recovered. And for the most part, they all have really good memories of what happened that day. Aside from the horror of it all, there are good memories. Angels are with us all the time. I may have one or two looking over my shoulder right now. Again, this is Easter night, so I hope you all had a happy Easter, although you couldn't be with friends and family, except for those right there beside you. I'm looking at a button on my desk, and it says, what a long, strange trip. Now, this has nothing to do with the virus situation, but it's a very appropriate term, what a long, strange trip. I hope all of you stay safe. I hope all of you stay well. I hope your loved ones stay well. And we'll talk to you again. Have a great week.